Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome everyone to this edition of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch and with me helping find a missing body while pleading the fifth is my best friend and co-host Aaron. <laughs> Not going to be much good at that, but yeah, I'm here to talk about somebody else trying, that's for sure. <laughs> trying to help me find a missing body while pleading the fifth. You're good at pleading the fifth, I think, maybe, but maybe not. Oh, I could do that. Yeah. yeah. I'll do that here real quick when you ask me what I thought about this movie. I plead the Whoa. fifth, man. I Ayo. just plead Spoiler the Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're in week three of our journey through the Grisham verse, and this conversation centers around the Joel Schumacher-directed thriller, The Client. So here be spoilers. Uh, you've been warned as we get into the discussion of the, uh, well, pretty much the whole film. So that's what we do. All righty. Aaron, first time watching, I think for both you and me. Indeed. So let's, let's look at, uh, let's get the reactions, Aaron. Talk to me a little bit about your takeaway from this one. Not good. It's not a good takeaway. So this was part of the risk is what I will say is that when we decided, when I put forth this idea and you agreed. And we decided as a team that we would cover a bunch of these movies, some of which we had not seen. We knew that they weren't all going to be bangers. And we knew that there was running a risk that some may not be even very good because that's what happens when you cover movies you haven't seen yet. And up until now, for most of this year, 2022, we have been kind of going a different direction and really leaning into covering movies that we know we enjoy. So just setting the stage a little bit that that's not how I feel about this one. I had every intention of enjoying it. And I think that it has started to make something clear to me by watching this film. And that is that I have these rose colored glasses on of nostalgia for my time with John Grisham as an author before I was into film anywhere close to the way that I am now. So, you know, when we were young, we saw The Firm, right? We saw The Pelican Brief. We grew up with those movies. A Time to Kill for me. Those three were the mains. But I wasn't, like, remotely a film critic. I didn't talk about movies with anybody. I just watched them for fun. And it's a different game now. I've got so many movies under my belt, so to speak, so much experience that things have a harder time standing out and the positive notes in a movie really kind of, it really has to do something to earn those things now for me. So I, I, there's a lot of preference or preferencing prefer. What is that word? Is there a word preferencing? Is that a word? Preferential prefer. I am preferring. Prefer corn. Wendy prefer corn. Prepper, no, preparing to say, okay. The whole podcast. Can't prefacing. Me, prefacing. Me trying to figure out the English language. Prefacing. Yes, that's that's the word I was looking for. Thank you, Webster. Anyway, high five. I didn't love the movie, man. I thought it was honestly pretty boring. And we both, I believe, came away with a very similar feeling of it feeling like it was direct to TV. Both the look of the film, it felt cheap to me. I actually Googled if it went straight to DVD or straight to movie to, to cable back in the day and found out that it actually was a box office hit, so to speak, it made almost triple its budget, which I found astounding. And knowing now that Schumacher directed this movie before getting to direct a time to kill afterwards, which is a movie I 
remember absolutely loving. I'm really nervous now because I haven't seen it in a long time. But I, I thought, wow, how did that happen? Because there's just something missing here, man. And I actually went as far, Pat, as to pull up the book synopsis, Patrick, and read through some of it to kind of compare and contrast just how the plot developed in the film version. And there's just, even just reading back through the book synopsis, I was like, oh yeah, man, this is a good, I, this is a great little legal thriller. This is a great concept. And this is, but there's backstory to it. Like it, it starts with the fact that, you know, why there's someone after this lawyer and the fact that the district attorney is trying to track down these mobsters and find the kill. Like it's, there's so much more setup to it then we get kind of thrown into this whole situation here that it just didn't really work for me very well. And I, I felt like the actors, for the most part, and I would say outside of maybe Susan Sarandon, performance-wise, I just felt like they were either being poorly directed or they were just kind of sleepwalking through this thing. There was no charisma and energy to it at all. And even Sarandon, man, her character is just... I was like, this can't be the John Grisham protagonists that I remember. There is one courtroom scene in this movie, and I believe it's the first one out of all three movies that we've seen. Is that true? Do you Is that, that is tracking? That is okay. true. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's about five minutes, and it's dumb. It's They look like they're in the classroom. Judge Judy, man. It's Judge 120 Judy. 120B at high school X. Yeah, I mean, with some benches. I, it just doesn't feel at all like a legal thriller to me. The mob feels really silly and, re and really amateurish. That was part of my conflict was we're supposed to believe that this mob is responsible for being so big of a family, so powerful of a family that they would have the cojones to knock off a flipping senator, but they operate like your friendly neighborhood, you know, startup gang. And it's just goofy to me. Just the, the pieces just it didn't, didn't coalesce. Like I like the idea of it, and it just it starts to feel like both the previous two films, The Firm and The Pelican Brief, almost like they got smashed together because you have this mob influence right on a situation, and they're influencing it. I don't even remember if they mention it in the movie, but the reason that they kill the senator is because of political bill passing and it has to do with like some toxic dump or something that they're trying they don't want they won't want something passed which is very pelican brief conspiracy theory like they're trying to influence the way the government bills get passed anyway there's my starting thoughts i should shut up because i'm just gonna end up going on and on and on but uh i well, didn't love it man i didn't love it well i didn't either and i look at it as against the movies that came out that year i just did a quick kind of uh look up here you got pulp fiction kind of ringing in at number one shawshank redemption clerks forrest gump dumb and dumber and i'm looking through here little women another susan sarandon movie the crow the lion king speed um let's see maverick reality bites uh, ace ventura true lies so I'm, I'm kind of thinking this was a m movie that was living in a world with sort of a wide variety of popular movies and like you, looking back on it, particularly in comparison to the previous two entries, while I know people at the time were not watching these movies like this week to week because they didn't have the options that we do, I think it would be easy to sort of lump it in 
with some of those other ones. Now, obviously, when you look at the Pulp Fictions and the Shawshank Redemptions, these are really good movies. And so to compare it to those, I think, is not even remotely fair or uh, accurate because it does feel like a made-for-TV movie. It feels like something you'd catch on Lifetime. And I don't think that's the fault of really any particular person, but I feel like in comparison to the firm and the pelican brief those felt like really mature adaptations of books that i've never read the pelican or the the client feels like a 90s thriller on the cheap side where i would accept it in 19 early 1990s i w- i would think yeah this this makes sense and you've got up and coming or semi popular actors like susan sarandon who are leading the charge well that's the thing sarandon and Tommy Lee Jones are at one of the highest points of their careers. And I looked this up okay. because I was curious. Jones is coming off of JFK, Under Siege, and I, I don't say that ironically. He's phenomenal in Under Siege as a chaotic, crazy villain, and directly coming off of The Fugitive. Sarandon is coming off of, crap, I'm going to blank it, but uh, Lorenzo's Will, I think, is one of them, and I can't remember what else, but there's something else. But anyway, basically, they were two really strong actors. Now, the rest of the cast, I, I, it's a lot of people that we recognize now that I don't think we would have known who most of them were at the time. We would have recognized Goose, you know, well, Mr. Okay, we would have recognized, <laughs> yes, Anthony Edwards, but I mean, but, like, but you're Bradley right, yeah. Whitford, and, yeah. you know, it just goes on and on. There's a bunch of them. Sure, sure. So, so watching this, there's obviously, you mentioned it before, there's a different set of eyes that we put on this. You from a nostalgic point of view of appreciating the books and really seeing these adaptations, me never having seen them. I'm starting to see with these, Aaron, there's a formula to what Grisham does, at least in the adaptation where you have a main lawyer, you have an enemy law firm of some kind or an enemy lawyer. You got the mob in some way, and you've got the FBI and you've got some kind of, victim, whether it's a brief, (laughs) whether it's uh, a kid in this regard. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think if you're an author, you write what you know. And Grisham clearly knows his law stuff, but I'm feeling a little cheated at this point because I feel like he's he is cheating us by saying, are these really about the law or is he just sort of interjecting law stuff into what he would call thrillers? And again, I'm speaking strictly to the movies, not to the books, because the books can be completely different. And so when you get to the client, as you said, there's a lot more going on in the book that we don't get. And this is where I think you get the product of telling and not showing. This idea of packing your movie full of things that maybe aren't quite necessary, and instead of instead of actually giving us authentic backstory, authentic background. So with The Firm and with The Pelican Brief, these were long movies. The Firm, I still am surprised that it's the longest of any of these because I feel like it has the most kind of action, the most kind of balance of everything. At two and a half hours, this is kind of rounding out at two hours, and yet we're not getting a lot of... We're getting a lot of one thing and not a lot of another. So the story opens with a nice Memphis Southern accent conversation between a trailer park mom and her son. And it just feels kind of dirty. It feels really flat. 
not grounded necessarily, but flat in terms of just what's going on. And so when they discovered this greasy guy who is trying to kill himself via exhaust and then eventually shoots himself in the face, I don't really know where this is going to go. So when we get to the crux of it, where this kid knows something and he's trying to be ousted by Tommy Lee Jones and his gang, and he eventually goes to Susan Sarandon and gets her stuff. I was starting to get a little frustrated because I was thinking, okay, maybe he's going to confide in her and maybe the law or the ability to protect a client's rights to tell the truth is going to come through. And instead he puts her in a pickle and I'm almost frustrated with him at this point. I'm going, okay, so who's the story about? Who are we actually supposed to be like latching onto? Because I never felt a lot of empathy for the kid. I felt more empathy for his brother who was in shock, who was in basically like a walking coma or a sleeping coma at this point. I thought the story was actually going to be about him. When you read the synopsis, you're like, oh my gosh, this kid saw something, but he can't talk because he's catatonic. What's going to happen? Instead, you get this kind of mouthy older brother who walks into different Memphis law firms in this building, which I don't know if they actually exist, and starts, I mean, there are almost more comedic parts to this than anything else. And I that's something I wanted to talk about was Schumacher's directorial style. What I'm enjoying from going through this is seeing how a director puts his stamp on a movie. And so far, we've definitely seen the stamp of each director on the movie that they're given. And I almost want to do kind of a roulette style of like, all right, what would what would the firm look like if Schumacher put his stamp on it? And I don't want to know that, honestly. But the, the concept is really interesting because I think what we're getting is that style that comes out. Those goofy mobsters, I think, is something straight out of what we eventually saw in Batman and Robin and Batman Forever. The idea of saying, okay, you know what? Let's have some fun with these guys. The problem is the first half of the movie sets us up for trying to really feel dramatic, really care for a child. And really see like this small town lawyer take on this big giant dude and his you know gang of legal folks. And that sort of got washed out near the back third of the movie because we get the obligatory chase scene and some unrealistic resolution to that. So for me, it just felt very uneven. And that's why I felt like the cheapness of it felt more like a TV movie because it was almost like, all right, we've got this budget. And we need to get from here to here. Here's our here's our plot. How do we do that? And so I thought a lot of stuff was cut out. Not a lot of stuff was explained. It didn't give me enough time, not duration, but really just sitting in scenes to really care about, you know, the Reggie Loves or the Mark Sways. And so I just felt like I got stereotypical storytelling at that point. Now that's me in 2022 talking about a movie back in the early 1990s. So in some cases that's not fair, but still. There are movies, aka The Pelican Brief and The Firm, that still feel relevant today because they tackle things and are directed and written well enough to kind of say, hey, this feels very green, uh, evergreen. It feels very much universal, whereas this just feels like a thriller that existed in the 90s. I don't think any of this stuff would actually take place today. One of my big problems with it is that what you just ended with, so I'll start there, because that was a huge detractor for me watching it was the whole movie is over patrick if the kid gets called in with tommy lee jones and the fbi i don't even know if this is how these things go down by the way procedurally like is a district attorney basically walking around with fbi agents that are his lackeys 
because that's how it was portrayed, which is ridiculous. And sitting down with the kid, and yes, he, you know, he skirts the law, right? Which in one of the great, probably maybe the best scene in the movie, honestly, is when Reggie walks in and starts just introducing herself to Tommy Lee Jones and the FBI agents and starts telling them basically what they did wrong and making and catching them in their lies and then plays that tape. I love that singular moment. So when that happens, it's a great setup to, this is the problem with a lot of the movie is like, it's a lot of like things that happen to set up what it needs you to have happen. Like it's almost circumstance. It's, it's forced. But point being is if Mark is sitting in that room with Tommy Lee Jones, a U.S. district attorney and a bunch of FBI agents, and they say, hey, did dude tell you where the body is? You say, oh, yeah, he said it's down by yonder under the boathouse. And the movie's over. Like, I, I don't understand the point of the movie because if he tells them, they go find the body. I mean, is he, I guess the idea is maybe that he's going to be killed because he told them if they find out that's how they discovered the body. They're going to come after the kid, perhaps. So I, I can understand a little bit about that, but there's no immediate discussion right off the top about witness protection. Like, that's how this would actually go down. That would have happened at the beginning of the movie. It would have been, tell us what you know. We will protect you from the mob. And and that's, like, pretty much it. And I think they, they being Grishup in the story, he manufactures this extra drama by putting one of the kids into a coma and having a family that's down on its luck and can't afford medical care. And so you put them in this position to where he's trying to create a situation where he shows a downtrodden Southern family that doesn't have any faith in the law and they want to get all this extra protection and and be taken care of. And they're not being given it because these U S attorneys just want the glory of solving the case and so i i get it like mentally i get it but i i don't intelligently i get it i guess but i don't understand it logically because i don't think this is how it would go down and right. so it's 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 hard for me it's hard to jump well and it's part of the reason for that i think is that there's a gap in understanding motives of each individual character so let's just take the two lawyers but i think the biggest highlight for me besides those pocket scenes that play out so well. I, I like, in some ways, I really like the scene in the car with him and, and the and the lawyer. How greasy he was! Like it felt very uncomfortable, and I, I thought that was a, a great scene. How freaked out he was, but how he gets there, not quite really understanding that. I'm not saying he shouldn't have helped or he shouldn't have, you know, taken that out. But once the guy put the pipe back or put the pipe back into the uh, the hose back into the pipe, I mean, what do you do with that? So there's a lot there that because we don't know the motives of the individual characters to begin with, we put ourselves in a position of saying, well, how do I justify their actions leading up to this? So take Reggie Love, for instance, on paper, watching the movie, she is a lawyer that has quote, one more cases than she's lost. So clearly she's not Perry Mason again, going up against Roy Fultrig the Reverend Roy Fultrig, who apparently never loses a case. So he's like Perry Mason, only his evil twin. But that's what we get. We get sort of foils of these characters instead of like, it would be interesting to know how did Reggie get to where she was? Because one of the cruxes of the movie that's pointed out 
by Mark when he walks into her office as he's as um as her intern is leaving, Goose is leaving. He asks her, "Hey, when you're when when he gets back, tell him I need to talk to him." And she obviously introduces herself as, you know, I'm Reggie, which, by the way, I think one of the highlights for me are the names. I love the names in this movie. Reggie Love, Roy Fultrig, The Sways. It's just good stuff here. So if anything, Grisham's nailing it with really great, just memorable names or, or names that feel like they're part of it. They're like, you know, like Memphis Reigns. That's a great name, even though it didn't get used hardly enough in Gone in 60 Seconds. That's a different story altogether. But we get moments with them that are just sort of like, ah. So you're the female lawyer that doesn't get respect. Okay, we need to put you in a scene where you're going to show that you deserve respect. And that's the scene that you referred to. Where I wanted this movie to shine was that courtroom scene. I was like, all right, we're getting it. We're getting the chess match that I want. And right. five minutes later, the kid goes, can I plead the fifth? Is that Ill- is that legal? And the judge says, no, son, you can't. And then <laughs> Reggie's like, actually, he can. And this is the reason why. And now we're off to the races of like, we got to go find the body. But you're exactly right, Aaron. The fact is, what was going to happen to him if he told them where the body was? And what was the, why was, why is he so nervous around them? Like, what's, what's the deal? Is it because of Grisham inserting this whole idea of I've got a family and like, I, I never knew anything about Mark's family with relationship in relationship to lawyers or the FBI or police officer or anything. I may have missed that in the movie. And I think that's where I felt disconnected because as he gets put through the situation, I never feel like any of his motives are justified when he could have just said, look, go ahead and tell them where the body is. Speak for me. And if I've got this attorney client privilege, do your lawyer thing and protect me. That would have been it. So. I find it difficult to really care about a character who's not really being treated terribly, to be honest. Is he being grilled unfairly? According to Reggie, he is. But the fact is, <laughs> he knows something. And why is he? I never really understood why he was protecting that. He wasn't protecting the lawyer that, was sh- that shot himself. Mm-hmm. He wasn't protecting the dead body. And so when you get to the point where he and Reggie are now going to New Orleans to find this body. Yeah, that felt insane. incredibly unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And you could probably justify it by saying, yeah, he and his brother, they're always on their own. You know, their mom works. And so they kind of, you can kind of believe that they're, but no lawyer is going to say who's, <laughs> who protects him in that room by saying his mom wasn't present is going to tell him you don't need to go or you need to right. come with me or is going to accept that. She and she doesn't need to go. This 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 is the other thing. She did not feel like somebody who was going to do this stuff. She didn't feel like a Mitch McDeer. This this didn't feel like her no. character would do this to go into a boathouse and discover a body with this kid. Their characters did not line up with that motive or even that action. They would have totally gotten busted at some point. Right. <laughs> they're not 100%. that they're not that secretive. So that was probably one of my biggest frustrations is that I didn't believe these people doing what they were doing could actually get away with it, nor would they be able to sell me on the fact that they they were going to do it. They, they'd hire other people to do it for them. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, and I think this is that thing that I'm recognizing with Grisham, right? We associate by default, we say legal thrillers, 
I, without having revisited all of these or read the books in two decades now, my mind goes to legal thriller and I think about courtroom and I think about the drama and thrilling nature of a courtroom scene, not trying to create some sort of crime solver out of your just happens to be an attorney character. And that is what Grisham has written up until this point. Now, there are some that are going to change this formula. A Time to Kill is going to change this. The Runaway Jury is going to change this. They are courtroom-heavy movies that are more about the deep actual characters or stories, I should say. I, I should stop speaking for the movies ahead of time before these revisits because gosh knows, I don't know what's going to happen. But like those stories are more about like in the courtroom. These are not A Few Good Men, by the way. I'm really freaking glad that we are ending this with A Few Good Men. So like no matter how bad this goes over the next couple months, like we will have a palate cleanser overall to like end it with the holy grail yes. of this kind of yeah. thing. But mm -hmm. that's what I want is I want more of that, right? I want less running to New Orleans to find a body. And I want more of you up against Tommy Lee Jones in the courtroom with you as this down on your luck, self put through college after you were drunk and a, and a druggie and you lost your husband and your kid. Tell me that story. I want to know about your past. I want to know why I want to see more of you becoming a surrogate mother to this character through right. the courtroom drama, not through you illegally driving off with him and putting yourself in position to be aiding and abetting someone who broke out of jail to, you know, like I, the characters are there. But they're just he's not the stories are not lined up in a way that I think highlights the the best possible thing to do with them. And maybe yeah. it's just it I, it. I don't know. Maybe it just took him time. But maybe or maybe this is his fantasy, too. I mean, it's the guy has a legal background and maybe this is what he wants to see. Right. Is to think about lawyers in this way. It's just not as been as overall compelling as I remembered so far. And this one yeah. really, really highlighted that. Yeah, and so what I'll say with regard to some positives that I pulled from this, one, I like, I don't love Joel Schumacher's style. I appreciate what he did with Batman Forever and Batman Robin. In other words, reinterpreting Batman that we know familiarly is can be campy, can be hokey, can be exciting, can be fun. I think that his interpretation of the mobsters particularly the main bad guy who comes in in that like crazy suit he feels like something out of batman and robin and he sort of acts a little bit nutty which is nice levity but again if the tone is going one way you don't want to include that what i do like is the fact that there's some grittiness to it there's some dirtiness to it he also directed flatliners which i really enjoyed and that's kind of dark and gritty and dirty and i think some of that comes out in this it's just not as i think it's the subject matter that sort of hinders that because you don't have enough of those characters that you can play with and i think where he was where he was shining for me aaron was ironically during the whole body discovery capture th scenes when the neighbor of the house was alerted and he just goes nuts he's got all those signs and stuff and just gets just gets crazy and then, you know, our bad guy runs off. So I never felt like a threat from from the mobsters. And 
obviously if that was the intent, then well done, Joel. But I, I think that more than anything, he was probably of the three that we've seen so far, he's probably the best fit for this kind of movie because it's got a lot of action because it doesn't have a lot of courtroom drama. I don't know that his hand would be very well suited for the Pelican brief or the firm. I felt like he would have probably blown up some things and probably changed the music in the firm specifically for better or for worse, but mm. he would have inserted more hokiness to it and would have taken away from that tone. So if you're going to do a movie, Joel, that's a John Grisham movie, the subject matter of the client seems like a decent fit because it's got some of those pieces. Now, well executed. Probably Just wait till not. next week, though. I mean, your mind is going to be blown because you're going to be okay. like, "What is this? The same guy that made yeah. the time to kill is completely different. It is not. Yeah, there's none of this. And, and that's and, and I'm going to say all this on the record because I want to be surprised in that I don't yeah. want to shoehorn a guy because again, I'm looking at some of his other his other movies. They're mostly action related. Lost Phone Boys, booth. falling. Yeah, down. Lost Boys. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's it's gritty action suspense and so i my question is okay the picture that we've picked for this next episode takes place is is a courtroom scene and i'm like this better not be the only scene that's in a courtroom and you're telling me it's not so how is this going to work this may be coming down to screenplay and maybe maybe because because these came pretty close together i think a time to kill was 96 and um i don't remember when this was was 95 Anyway, yeah, ninety four. Yeah, so he wouldn't have had time to necessarily see the box off. Maybe he did to know. Okay, yeah, he's a good one for this. So I say all that to say I'm cautiously excited about this movie that I haven't seen, and uh, maybe Matthew McConaughey is what makes it great. I don't know who who knows. Well, yeah, but... Matthew, Matthew McConaughey and Samuel L. Jackson. I mean, you're kind of sure. You're, but we have great actors in all of these, and that's one of the things we've loved is seeing these different casts and. So those are some highlights as well. So Brad Renfro is the kid. It's his acting debut. Okay. I don't know if I would blame the acting. I don't know if I would blame the direction, probably the direction, a lot of it. I think the accents in this movie are absurdly stereotypical to the point that yeah. they really took me out of it at times. Both the mobsters and Tommy Lee Jones specifically was like, just stop, just, just stop. Like I've heard Tommy Lee Jones do similar southern type accents so much better it just didn't seem to it felt it felt caricaturish here in a lot of different places but major crush on mary louise parker not her character oh gosh, because yes. her character is an absolute mess but oh my gosh young like 30s or whatever mary louise parker like mm -hmm. sign me up for that um just gorgeous uh i don't know just mm -hmm. very very beautiful and i i like that little bit of kookiness and uh, and just playful that she's very this is gonna sound terrible and I, it's because I'm blanking for a better word right now but it's a homey look to her she is not a celebrity makeup covered gorgeous woman in the way that so many actresses that get attention for their for being quote beautiful are and so there's nothing wrong with that but I'm just saying Mary Louise Parker looks like someone that is in, in, in anybody's mom on any day. Like she could be the mom right. of these two kids. It doesn't feel at all out of place. So I think she fit very well. And I just loved her. 
And then, you know, I'll let you, you can talk about Anthony Edwards if you want. I thought he was goofy and not given anything to do at all. And I was a little bit annoyed (laughs) more than anything. I also briefly saw him and thought, huh, he's dead now. Before I realized Anthony Edwards is not dead. The goose is dead. But I did just go see Top Gun Maverick again yesterday. So you have to forgive me for that. I guess this was between. Is this before ER took off? Before yeah, he actually became he, a thing, because he he's like, because he still a had bit. a little bit of hair left. <laughs> okay, there is a cool scene where he's in the hospital as they're racing the pretend. He called it post-traumatic stress disorder. By the way, the kid, he's like, I faked post-traumatic stress disorder. The one thing I dislike about this that scene is they're like, he's soaking wet. And the, the the EMT touches him and goes, his heart's racing. It's going out of his chest. We got to get him to the hospital right now. And I was like, well, how did he do that? How did he fake that exactly from his right. cell? Anyway, but there's a brief moment where he is with the kid in the hospital, like running down the the hallway. And I was like, yes, just take him into the ER. You got it. Anyway, anyway. Uh, Will Patton. I love seeing Will Patton, even though he's a bad guy, kind of. He's just a little, not necessarily dirty, but shady. Uh, I just love Will Patton. And so anytime he shows up, I get a kick out of it. And I liked seeing him in a little bit role as the sheriff. I I love the moment where uh, the kid, Brad Renfro's character, what's his name in this anyway? Harry? It's Mark. 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 Mark, where Mark orders the pizzas to get back at That's the FBI great. guy. That was a phenomenal scene where he's like, she's like, that'll be 220. And he's like, oh, that's fine. Less than the last time. I was like, that was a great moment for me. I was like, yes, <laughs> way to get guy. him back. So, I mean, you know, there were there were some moments here and there that I enjoyed for sure. And some characters. Yeah. Well, it's a, I won't call it the A-list of actors, but it's the up and comers. And you mentioned a couple. I will say this. I will watch most things with Bradley Whitford in it, uh, save whatever that COVID movie was that came out in 2020. I thought, Bradley, you needed a paycheck, I guess. <laughs> Lost a little respect for me. But... A lot of people did, man. <laughs> but I, I co-signed Mary Louise Parker. little trivia for you. Mary Louise Parker, Bradley Whitford, both West Wing alum, alumni. And just not quite a spoiler but they become a couple for a minute in the West Wing. So not only do they get to be on a TV series together, but they also get to share screen time and their dialogue because it's Aaron Sorkin is delightful. So if you ever decide to go down that rabbit hole, which I would just recommend the first four seasons just to, you know, whet your appetite of 88 episodes, uh, feel free to do that and enjoy it. But, uh, but yeah, I, I like seeing William H. Macy, you know, small role here, but He's always fun to fun to watch, and, and you're right, Will Patton. He's um, he's one of those guys like, oh, who's that guy? He was in this, he was in that. He's one of those people, and I always like most things that he. I say always like most things. <laughs> I like most things that he's in when I remember that he's in them. I'm like, oh yeah, he was that way. I remember liking him in The Punisher, and I was like, oh yeah, I didn't expect to see him in that, but yeah, he is definitely a delight to to have. So having these guys sort of around these main characters was was lots of fun and there was some there was some dialogue between between Fultrig and and love that was that was lots of fun it's again it's a cheap way to get to the end but i like the fact that they sort of respect each other i think the concept of them respecting 
is good. I just don't feel it was earned. I felt like she makes this interesting line about obstructing justice and how she gets around it. And he's like, <laughs> I just, I think if we'd had a big courtroom scene, like a whole thing, that line would have landed a lot better. But I like the idea of these two lawyers that have earned each other's respect to an extent, because at the end of the movie, I don't think Reggie's lost anything. He's, or not Reggie, but um, Roy has lost anything. He's getting his time in the spotlight. And so it's very, very much scripted, very formulaic. But um, I definitely thought that if Schumacher's going for leading lady and leading man, it's definitely with these two. I thought, I thought the kid, even with some of his moments, I felt a little bit like he was sort of a chess piece to show off. Like he was a means to an end for her to kind of have her moment to shine. And that's not a bad thing, but I watched the trailer <laughs> as dated as the movie is. The trailer's probably even worse, but it definitely puts the kid in the driver's seat. Like, Oh, he's going to be the crux of this whole thing. When in actuality, it really is about uh, Reggie versus Roy in that regard. So, you know, for better, or for worse, We'll just leave it there, you know? Yeah, I guess. I'm, it, it, it's such a weird place. And they leave it off like, I guess it's, why is this the norm? So this is three for three in our movies ending with protagonists basically having to run and completely change their life or blackmail someone in order to hope that they are safe. Because Mitch McDerry does it in The Firm. He blackmails the mob which presumably he's going to be safe as long as his brother never gets found but he's always gonna have to sort of look over his shoulder because of that we end with i can't even remember her name now darby shaw darby darby shaw see i i just had to say it out loud and then it came to me but we end with darby <laughs> shaw like at an undisclosed location hiding away while all of this law stuff goes down so that she doesn't get you know, whack. And then here we have the similar thing with this family. Like they're going into witness protection and they have to completely change their lives and start all over somewhere else, which in it's played as if it's a good thing for them. So Walking it tries closets, to like, man. it tries to spin it. Yeah. To make you think that this <laughs> is a victory for them in the end. But are, where are, are our lawyers really that good, Patrick? Like, I, I mean, our lawyers are not sh shaking out that great, you know. Other than, actually, I guess she probably comes out better than the most of them, in that she has this information to lord over Fultrig uh, in the tape, right? That's where what her kind of thing is. But the mob could still come after her. Like, they know she was there, right? So that's the other I thing, guess. like, yeah. I, I, we're meant to believe that the mob just gives this whole thing up. They're just, they just quit because clearly uncle Joey or whatever is ordering switchblade Barry or <laughs> Benny the blade. Switchblade Barry. <laughs> I was close. <laughs> <laughs> Benny. That would almost work in a movie like this. Switchblade <laughs> Barry takes it. <laughs> Benny, Benny the blade. He's ordering him dead. Right. So, but I don't know. It, it, the whole thing is just, I needed, needed better resolution. Anyway, I think the highlight it's of the, the movie, yeah, the highlight of the movie for me, besides the great names, uh, and you pointed this out in a Vox before as you were watching it, was a uh, a reference to a Pez dispenser called Oh Pez my Lee. gosh. 
I thought that was great. So <laughs> yeah, so I thought I thought about you, and I was like, you probably laughed at this out loud. I did laugh happened. at that. <laughs> <laughs> Elvis Pesley. Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's leave it there on the happy note as we finish up this episode of a feeling film next week we stick with joel schumacher and we are cautiously optimistic that a time to kill will actually make us feel good beyond great names and funny dad jokes um of that kind so hope you guys join us uh aaron thanks for the best conversation you could give us tonight and we will talk soon is he an attorney in this movie even He's an intern, I think. He never really say what he is. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. An intern? Is that what you just an said? An intern. He's an intern, not an attorney. He's an intern. <laughs> You're hilarious, sir. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.